What to Know podcast explores best practices, innovation, and latest trends with industry experts with an eye toward helping you, the listener, stay ahead of the ever-changing marketing and communications landscape. Good morning. This is Aaron Strout, CMO of W2O and host of the What to Know podcast show. And I am joined today by my new colleague, uh, Guy D'Andrea, who is the founder and partner of Discern Health. Welcome, Guy. Thank you. Glad to be here. I'm glad to have you here. And uh, we haven't had too, too many W2Oers uh, are part of the family on the show, although I've now had two in a row because we had Dan Linton on last week. But we thought it would be a good idea since you just joined the W2O family, all 30 of you and your, your colleagues, and we're thrilled to have you here. We're going to talk a little bit more about what you all do, um, the importance of why sort of adding you to the family made sense both to you and to us. Uh, where sort of value-based health is sort of where it is now and where it's headed. And then we have a few fun questions at the end. So why don't we start with how you got here? And you and I were talking a little bit in our upfront about the fact that um, you had worked in uh, healthcare policy for about a decade, and then you decided to go to business school, and then you decided to start this little old company called Discern Health back in 2004. So Tell us a little bit about that journey and, and your thinking along those lines. Sure, thank you. Yeah, I, I started my career um, uh, in the, at the state policy level. I actually was a philosophy major, if you can believe it, in um, undergraduate, so I didn't really have a lot of uh, marketable skills, but I, I got an internship with a state trade association for healthcare in Maryland. Uh, this was in the early 90s. And after working there for a couple of years, uh, was able to then move to Washington, D.C., working for a trade group there. And that's where I really got to know a lot of how health policy has developed, some of the key issues uh, that were facing the, the industry at that time, which were mostly around managed care. Um, and then um, I, I started to work for URAC, uh, which is a health quality accreditation organization that was in the late 90s. And I was there for seven years. And my job was to help them to develop the quality standards that they used to measure different healthcare organizations uh, to ensure that they were meeting patients' needs, that they were complying with clinical guidance and so on. Um, and I was also able at URAC to be part of their management team. So we were making decisions about office space or personnel or you know just management issues. And I realized that I really had little knowledge about how to run a business. So I uh, decided to go back to school and um, went to a Columbia Business School program uh, in the early 2000s. And about halfway through that, decided to found my own company. I uh, felt that you know, the knowledge I had gained in, both in school and in work might be uh, valuable to clients. And so in early 2004, I started uh, DeAndrea Consulting. We were DeAndrea Consulting for six months until I came up with a better name and a name that had a website address available. Uh, so that was Discern. And then, um, and then really started from there. Well, it, that's, thank you for sharing that journey. And uh, I like the name. It, it has a certain ring to it. Let's talk a little bit about what Discern Health does today and you know, why sort of what you all bring to the table is more important than ever as we sort of look at more and more value-based healthcare. When I started Discern in 2004, 
my expertise had been in quality measurement and thinking about how to, to uh, promote better quality of, of care. But at that time, the issue of quality was intersecting with the question of how we pay for health care in this country. Historically, we had paid doctors and hospitals based on the volume of services that they provided. So if they provided more services, if they provided more complex services, they were rewarded in the marketplace. But the idea emerged that we really should connect payment with better delivery of care, uh, more efficient care, higher quality care, higher patient outcomes. And so that's the foundation of value-based care. Uh, around 2004, when I started discern, we were just starting to pilot test how those programs might work, right? And you can imagine there are a lot of technical issues you have to address. If you want to pay doctors for better quality of care, you have to figure out, well, how do we actually measure quality? Uh, how do we ensure that that quality measurement is fair to doctors so that doctors who are treating sicker patients or different populations are not penalized by the measurement? How do you structure payment in a way that's fair, um, that, that creates maybe some risk for better performance, but doesn't jeopardize the financial stability of the healthcare delivery system, and which allows providers to continue to see patients, right? So we have to actually make these changes while the system is still operating. We can't restart with a clean sheet of paper. Um, so the last, uh, 20 years in healthcare, and certainly the last 16 years of my professional life, have been focused on that question of how, how as a practical solution in healthcare, do you build a value-based model which measures and rewards better performance, better patient care, and, and better overall health outcomes? So I guess one of the questions I have is, it seems like healthcare is a very qualitative thing, right? I mean, there are binary, like, did you get better or did you not? How long did it take? Did you die or did you not, right? Um, walk through the process a little bit of how you evaluate some of these things, because it feels to me like there's a lot of nuance. I mean, you're talking about quality, so qualitative measures versus quantitative measures, but I know that you all have, you know, nailed that process down and have some very specific things, but for those wondering how you sort of are able to, to get very precise you know, numbers and approaches down, that would be good to know, I think. Right, well, I, I should say that it, it's very much an evolving field, um, but a, a large focus of quality measurement in healthcare is really at the population level, right? So any individual patient has unique characteristics, has maybe comorbidities, other needs, uh, different financial uh, circumstances, and so evaluating any individual person's care is, um, is, always has to be done in the context of their overall experience. But when we accumulate a large, popu large enough population of patients, we can start to look at trends um, and start to draw some conclusions, right? So if a doctor is treating a large number of di diabetes patients, for example, we can say, well, is that doctor, first of all, delivering the right care to, that, to those patients? Um, are they conforming to the science-based guidelines of, of care for patients with diabetes? We can then start to look also at outcomes, right? So are those patients being treated by that provider achieving better control of their diabetes? Are they avoiding unnecessary use of 
emergency room? Or are they avoiding some of the longer term complications of, of diabetes? And then finally, we can start to look at the patient's own evaluation of their outcomes, right? And this is really where measurement is trying to go. So, you know, given that each patient might have a different perspective about what's important to them, you know, how are we able to capture their perspective and their feedback so that we know that we're actually meeting their needs? That kind of measurement is especially important uh, in areas like oncology, where patients at different parts, stages of their life might have very different opinions uh, about what's important to them, right? Um, a 40-year-old uh, mother of young children might have a different set of criteria for what effective cancer care looks like than an older patient um, might. So we're really trying to build that uh, perspective, the patient voice into measurement. So I think that's probably a good segue to our next question, which is, we decided to join forces. I know W2O and Discern Health had been working together for probably a year on various projects, but we officially came together, I think it was last month, and uh, thrilled to have you all as part of the team. What attracted you to W2O and what made you feel like this was such a good fit? Sure. So our, our message to our clients uh, over the course of Discern's um, existence has been that understanding and navigating value-based care is essential to success as a healthcare organization, success as a business. And when you think about the implications of value-based care, you very quickly realize that it touches almost every aspect of a healthcare organization's uh, operations. Um, the way they interact with patients, the way they, they talk to customers, the way that they collect data, the evidence that they generate about the services and the products that they offer. And so to actually opt for us to help our, our clients achieve that integrated solution, we really needed to broaden our capabilities. And of course, we've done that over the course of our 15-year history. You know, we've added staff that have different kinds of expertise. But to really accelerate that process, we thought it was important to be part of a larger team that already had uh, the resources, the expertise, uh, the capabilities that W2O has. So for us, it means uh, that we're now able to offer our clients a comprehensive and integrated solution to navigating the value-based care healthcare system. And I, hopefully for W2O, it means that they can now bring this perspective into what was already a very robust set of relationships with their clients. I, I like that answer, thank you. And it's interesting because I know we as a company are looking to evolve to be you know, more consultancy, less agency only. We're not shy about our agency heritage, but you all do bring a level of consultant, consultative you know, process. The people that are on the team are much more you know, in that mindset versus the traditional account person or the creative. So, you know, really excited about the marriage there. Let's talk about why is it that, you know, you mentioned that in 2004, value-based healthcare started to become a thing. That's 16 years ago. It feels like over the last five years, and particularly the last like 18 months, two years, it's really become such a hot topic. I'm sure some of that has to do with the whole, you know, payer space and sort of what payers are willing to reimburse and 
obviously people care more about their health than ever. COVID has clearly shined a, a bright light on that. But let's talk a little bit about why it's it's such an important topic these days. Sure. So back in 2004, uh, the amount of dollars associated with value-based care or pay for performance or pay for quality was, was very much at the margins. Uh, it was a new idea. It was, you know, maybe a percent, two percent of, of healthcare spending would have been associated with value-based care. But starting in that, in that period, we had both the, fed, uh, both the private sector and the federal government uh, move in that direction. Um, so uh, uh, President Bush actually issued, I think it was in 2008, an executive order that directed federal agencies to move towards value-based care as a way of paying for health care. Uh, all the large national health plans at that point were moving in that direction. And that, that evolution has really accelerated now over the last five to 10 years. So depending on which data you look at, uh, something like a third to a half of healthcare payments in the United States now are connected in some way to performance. How much is actually at risk? What measures are being used? These are all things that are, are, um, that are changing and evolving. But there's no question that we've achieved a certain critical mass in terms of the amount of the healthcare economy that is connected to value. And so that's really driven a tremendous amount of engagement at every layer of the system, right? We see doctors and hospitals organizing themselves into integrated care models so that they can better provide population health. We see large health plans uh, putting more resources and um, effort into building these value-based contracts with their providers. We certainly see the federal government across multiple administrations now, enhancing their commitment to value-based care payment and value-based care models. So all those things have really converged to make this a, a strategic imperative. I'm gonna ask you a question that we didn't cover up front and you can choose to answer it or not, but obviously we're li you know, living through unique times with COVID. Uh, we have all of the, the social unrest focused on the racial disparities and healthcare disparities that are really getting a light shined on them. How much does value-based healthcare, you know, help or hurt this cause? And, you know, what, where is that trending as we, as we speak? Sure. So it has the potential to help. Um, I think the, the research suggests that value-based programs haven't always been designed in a way that uh, is intended to, 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 close care disparities and address these issues. So certainly over the last several months, we've been asking this question, you know, how can we use our expertise and, and the tools that we have to, to address those care disparities and those gaps? Uh, there have been numerous efforts to do that over the years. I think there, there's an increased emphasis on that uh, in, the, in the context of these last six months and, and some of the issues that we're reminded have been an issue in healthcare for a long time. So the data certainly show that there are significant disparities uh, between um, health for health outcomes based on a number of uh, sociodemographic factors. We know that the, the, the causes of those disparities are very complex. It's not just healthcare delivery 
right? There are social factors uh, that that um, are part of that uh, that issue, and so we're trying to figure out how to connect these different efforts together in order to drive overall population health improvement. That makes sense. Um, let's talk about some of the other trends that are happening right now. What do you see going on in this space over the next, you know, three, five years? And obviously I know part of that's hard to predict given the current circumstance, given the election in, you know, 2020 or the in November, I should say we're in 2020. Um, you know, what are you seeing? Sure. So certainly the, the focus on outcomes measurement and specifically including the patient voice in measurement is, is a key goal. Um, so again, rewinding the clock to 20 years ago, most of the measures in use at that time were process measures, right? So was, was a provider delivering a certain service? Now we're trying to move more towards outcome measures and more towards patient reported outcome measures. There are a lot of technical and data challenges associated with that, as you can imagine, right? Where do you collect the data? One of the interesting things we're doing with W2O is to think about social media data as a possible source for hearing the patient voice, understanding the patient experience, understanding what their challenges are, and trying to integrate that into measurement. Uh, so that's, that's an interesting project that we've already started to, to work on with W2O. Um, so that, that's, that's a key, um, that's a key uh, trend. Um, another key trend is trying to think about how we actually share this information and make it meaningful to patients, right? So in a perfect value-based system, patients would be voting with their feet and seeking care from those providers who do meet their needs more completely, who, who generate better outcomes. But I don't think we've done a very good job of educating patients and engaging patients in using this information. So I think that's also a real goal. Another trend um, that, all, that we have to balance into this process is the burden of measurement. Uh, so providers are, are busy, especially now, uh, you know, they're dealing with a lot of uh, challenges to, in terms of how they best serve patients' needs. And so layering on administrative burden in terms of measure data collection and reporting is, uh, is problematic. And so there's a lot of focus about how to make measured data collection more efficient. Uh, and so that'll be, continue to be a focus. So can I drill down on, I guess it's sort of mostly one and part of three. Mm -hmm. Is telemedicine helping with any of that? Because obviously now you have a more trackable, more electronic, you have uh, a lot of exhaust data, right? People are using more and more devices. They're using their Alexas and their Google Homes and their Fitbits and their Aura Rings. Are you seeing that making it easier to measure or is it making it more complicated to your last part where now you have so much data it's figuring out, you know, which, which pieces of data are the most relevant. And sometimes you can have that overload, right? And, and that can confuse sure. things, even though it seems like it would be yeah. better. Yeah, I do think telemedicine is part of the solution, both to the actual performance piece of value-based care, right? If, if we can use telemedicine to better identify patients who need support, if we can use telemedicine to engage with those patients and get them the 
the guidance and, su and support that they need, right, that will actually improve population health outcomes, which in the end is what we're trying to do. Telemedicine also offers the potential to generate the data that we might use to evaluate performance and, and assess how the system is, is doing. As you say, it's a huge amount of data uh, and there's a lot of work in terms of uh, bringing that data in and translating it into meaningful measurement. And I, and I do think that is one of the, the big trends that we'll see play out. Again, where the social media work we're doing with W2O hopefully will make some contribution to, answer, to answering that question. Yeah. So it, on that social media front, um, obviously, we, we brought Simpler into the folds not too long ago, and they have really been great at helping to process Twitter data, uh, among other things. And I guess one of the things I've heard, you know, from our colleagues in the analysis is that Reddit actually tends to be a really uh, rich source of, of uh, data around healthcare and outcomes. Are you seeing any of those or, you know, any particular curveballs that you're, are, are, are um, interesting, you know, sources that maybe you wouldn't have expected? That, that's a question I would actually uh, have to defer to some of my new colleagues uh, within W2O who are more expert than I am in the sources of the data. I think we're, we're uh, more trying to build the connections between those data flows and established questions of, of healthcare performance measurement. Well, fair enough. And that will be one that will be good to watch. But I, it has been interesting because as you probably know, one of the difficulties is a lot of the social platforms don't allow pictures uh, or, you know, don't allow for some of the, you know, the reporting out there because they know that there are liability issues, right? So Reddit has become one of those places that tends to over-index a little older, a little more wealthy, and people have, you know, sort of really deep dive uh, conversations in some of the subreddits, and I've seen some of the, the outcomes from it, and it's actually been quite fascinating. So. Uh, we'll be good to keep an eye on that one. So I would like to shift now to a couple of more fun questions, more personal questions. And the first one I've started asking the last few guests is, you know, in this crazy year that we live in, if you had one wish, any wish, what would it be and why? Yeah, that's a, it's a good question. I, I normally, by which I mean a year ago, let's say most of my wishes would have probably been fairly, um, focused on me and my family. I've got four kids and, and so their well-being and my wife's uh, well-being is, you know, my primary <laughs> concern. But if, if COVID has shown us anything uh, this year, it's that our individual well-being is, is completely uh, connected and tied into the well-being of the community. Um, and I guess wishing that we could go back uh, and not have this happen at all is probably not realistic. I, so the wish I would have now is just to know what comes next, right? To, to get past what uh, the, the current um, uncertainty and, and basically give us the, the information we need so that we can manage our, you know, our lives and, and the lives of our communities. It's, it's hard to be in limbo and it feels like many of us uh, are in limbo and, and we don't know how long that will last. So I would wish for that to, to, end. Well, that's a noble one. And it is hard. I think a lot of people felt like come summertime, we were going to start to see an end to COVID and then come fall, things would be back to normal. And I think that's been the, maybe the hardest part of COVID is, 
you know, when you think, oh, it's going to be a month or three months, and all of a sudden it might be a year or 18 months or whatever it's going to be. And it does seem like the trends are flattening a little bit, both from cases as well as deaths, but still way higher than it should be. And you see places like New Zealand where you thought, oh, that's great. They went 102 days without it. Any new cases mm-hmm. reported. And now all of a sudden I think it was 39 and they're starting to have to walk back and go back into lockdown. So um, so hopefully that wish can come true and we will have some insight with some treatments and some vaccine sure. horizon. Yes. Yeah. And one of, one of the things we're talking now with, with the whole team at W2O about is the contribution we can make in terms of a vaccine administrative structure, right? So uh, developing a vaccine, producing a vaccine obviously is a top priority, but to actually deliver that vaccine to the, those who need it, to track how well we're doing with that, um, and all the related administrative issues will be equally important. And so that's where uh, collectively with DISCERN and W2O, we have some expertise in thinking about how that data is collected, how it's tracked, how it's used to identify gaps and, and how to close those gaps. So hopefully we can be part of that solution. Yeah, and people do forget about that piece. That's the sort of messy, but most important, maybe least sexy element of it. So last question, and this is truly, uh, hopefully a fun one, but uh, you're on a deserted island, hopefully, you know, with a a nice drink and, uh, you know, suntan lotion and all that good stuff. Uh, But you can bring an album. Which album would you bring and why? Yeah, uh, it's a tough question, (laughs) but um, I would go with the Joshua Tree uh, by U2 um, as certainly one of my all-time favorite albums and and front to back uh, every song on that's great even the songs that aren't uh, as well known or you know classic uh, that but the, the uh, B side of that or get the, when it was an album which is probably right. how I first <laughs> I first got it uh, when it was an album even the the, the B side was uh, fantastic so that's my choice well, I love that choice, choice. Yeah, I love that choice. And it's actually probably in my top five, top 10. And uh, I've listened to that album probably a good, you know, three, 400 times. Uh, Paulo Simas, our uh, head of brand, was also a huge fan. And I know that's one of his favorite albums. So he'll, yeah. if you haven't met yeah. him, he'll be uh, really happy. <laughs> Great. Yeah, I look forward to it. And I, I saw you two uh, when they were touring, it was probably three years ago now, but they played that whole album. And uh, it was, it was fantastic. To hear it live and but yeah i've listened to that and every time it comes on or any song from it comes on i'm always uh it always takes sad. you back yeah no it's, yeah. it's a great choice and we had uh, paulo and i actually both went to the show out here in san francisco and it was we we both agreed one of the the best concerts we've ever been to and we've been to quite a few so i love your choice with that we will wrap up this is aaron strout cmo of w2o and host of the what's no podcast show I've had the pleasure of speaking with Guy D'Andrea, who is a founder and partner of Discern Health, a new member of the W2O family. So Guy, thank you so much. Really appreciate you squeezing this in before a little well-deserved PTO and uh, right before the weekend. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Want more episodes of What to Know? We post a new episode every Thursday. Subscribe on iTunes, the podcast app, the Stitcher app, or Spotify, and view the podcast page at w2ogroup.com slash what to know.